If I think about, do I look good on stage? Am I going to be smart? Am I going to come across right? It's too much pressure. Instead, I just like to flip the spotlight. It's not about me as the photographer. It's about the people I'm photographing. It's not about me as a speaker. It's about the audience. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from William Plomner. Creativity is the power to connect the seemingly unconnected. Our guest today, Jeffrey Saw, is a gifted creator. He's an accomplished portrait photographer and business leader who is an expert in branding and marketing. He's taken portraits of supermodels, sports icons, and way too many C-suite executives to name. And his work has been featured on Oprah, CBS News, and in the halls of Harvard University. He's also the best-selling author of multiple books and the host of the hit podcast, The Self-Employed Life. Jeffrey, welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Hey, Robert. I'm glad to be here with you. Thank you. So I always find it kind of instructive to start at the beginning. So give me a quick recap of your childhood. Uh, Did you have a, a passion for art and photography at a young age? Uh, when you talk about going back to the beginning, you're not kidding. Um, so no, I think I had a passion for avoiding life. Honestly, that was my, my sole goal in life. Cause I was so shy. My sole goal in life was to like not interact with people and figure out the, the thing I could do that would keep me most alienated. And of course that led to photography because back in the day we had dark rooms, right? So that was kind of the ideal hobby. Um, spent so, a lot of time in a dark room in yeah, high school. Yeah. I loved photography. Exactly. I mean, there's just no better. Per- so the irony was, I, as I look back at it now, the irony was, is that I was good at it. So the very thing that, you know, I thought was going to hide me from life wound up catapulting me into the spotlight, if you will, because I was so good at it. I started getting all these awards in high school and, and getting all this attention. And then I went off to photography school and I won every award imaginable in photography school. Uh, I was voted by the student body to be the, the speaker at graduation. <laughs> so the irony so was... What, what did you photograph? Anything or did you have a specific In the style? beginning, yeah, In the beginning, very fine art, you know, again, because it was... Um, I certainly didn't want to interact with people. So my thought was, I just, I saw beauty in the world, light, lights and shadows. And I liked graphic things that are very graphic. I definitely, I really loved architecture. Uh, and again, being out in the world with a camera, especially back in the day of film cameras, they were pretty big and clunky. So it was like a barrier. I, I felt like I was hiding when I had a camera in front of me. It was kind of like being a child. So what did you have, like a Leica? What did you have, Nikon? Um, or a- oh God, I had, well, Mamiya, once I started taking it yeah. a little more serious. Um, but, the, you know, being a photographer is like being a child. Like you think if you clo- if a child closes their eyes and thinks, thinks that you can't see them when their eyes are closed. Being behind a camera was kind of like that for me. If I was behind a camera, I assumed people couldn't see me. Um, so it started with kind of fine art, graphic, architecture. I went off to photography school thinking I'd be an architectural photographer. Uh, but somewhere along the way, I, I started photographing people in the room settings that I was photographing. And I realized that what I loved was kind of the intimate relationship. I'm not a crowd guy. I don't love, you know, yes, I am a professional speaker. I don't mind standing in front of a stage of thousands at this point. But um, I don't like that medium-sized experience where you're like networking with a, f- a couple yeah. dozen people and it's awkward. I either like really big crowds or intimacy. Yeah, well, people yeah. like speaking to big crowds. But to me, it's always like... Walking in a room of 700 people I don't know is like the worst thing you could do to me. 
Yeah, no, so to me, I'm comfortable there. I'm more comfortable with that than you put 24 people in a room because there's this, this weird in-between stage. Uh, but so photography school led me to finding myself as a portrait photographer. And that that's those are my mainstay for, you know, it's 40 years now. I do very little photography today, a couple shoots a year, but it was my only income for 25 years. I kind of miss the dark. I remember the pressure of rolling film and knowing mm-hmm. if you screwed it up you would ruin all the negatives <laughs> you get a like, kink in the film right and thinking like if <laughs> yeah. i was like a wedding photographer and i did this to someone's wedding like they you know it was really there was a lot more margin for error so what yeah. what was your big break as a portrait photographer a big break um honestly my big i mean i photographed a lot of uh, i mean in the end i became the, like the photographer for affluent families right so i, I went, ended up working with you know phenomenal people yes some celebrities a lot of sports figures because i was in the uh, the new york city area uh my primary clients were wall street folks that were really well known in the field of making money but they're not necessarily household names stephanie seymour uh the supermodel stephanie seymour uh, who was literally like the original a supermodel. Yeah. I mean, she was one of the first models to be given the title supermodel because she was a model for Victoria's Secret that crossed over to being a household name. And she was a client for decades. And, and that always stood out to me because I had said to her in one conversation, I'm like, you can have access, you have access to every photographer in the world. Why do you choose me to photograph your family? And she said, she goes, because every photographer that she's ever worked with sees her for her exterior beauty. She felt like I really saw her and I saw her family and I saw her relationships. And that that was a breakthrough moment for me in understanding who I was as a photographer and the value of people feeling seen for who they really are. And I'm curious, was that was her saying that a result of the work and, and the side of her you showed or the conversations you had with her behind the scenes and the discussion, the rapport you had built? You know, fantastic question. I would say in the end, actually, the photography. She could see a difference between. Correct. Yeah. yeah, there was authentic relationship in the way I photographed her and her family. And, um, you know, obviously, she's easy to photograph. But in fact, sometimes that can be a barrier, that level of beauty. Right. right? Because you have to, how do you break through it to show how much she really loved her kids and how much her kids leaned on her? So I think primarily for the photography, but obviously, I got to know her really well on a personal level as well. So I always find people are top of their craft. It's interesting in terms of how they how they prepare. And I think often that is not really seen, right? You just assume like, oh, they're good at it. Like think about one of these like really important shoots that you were going to do or someone like, how did you prepare behind the scenes to make sure that you did your best work? You know, honestly, it's the same way I prepare for coaching clients today and, and speaking on stages is that getting out of my head that it's not about me. You know, that's that's always the obstacle, I think. Uh, if I thought about that I had to do a good job, that this photo shoot had to be the best thing I ever did, if this photo, if I had to impress this important person I'm photographing, if I thought that, I, would, I just would collapse under the pressure. We can get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. In the same way as a speaker. It's like, if I think about, do I look good on stage? Am I going to be smart? Am I going to come across right? It's too much pressure. Instead, I just like to flip the spotlight. It's not about me as the photographer. It's about the people I'm photographing. It's not about me as a speaker it's about the audience and i always say to myself before i walk on stage no matter what happens keep going that's my mantra in my head meaning if i fall off the stage if my pants fall down if the sound goes out the lights go out just keep going you know that that mantra just keep going no matter what happens just keep going puts me a frame of mind for the other the people i'm serving and takes a spotlight off myself and that that's i think the only way you can be at the top of your game so interestingly i mean you reached the top of the field, as I mentioned above, I mean, you were photographing sort of who's who 
and then you decided uh, to make a transition in your career into into business consulting and speaking, and and then with a focus on branding specifically. Like, how and when did this all come about? Yeah, crazy, right? Because um, <laughs> people look at me, I was like, "What were you thinking? You, you know, you had everything." Well, branding, so, I I get the connection. To, I mean, yeah. the way portraits is telling stories, right? But with a camera, so right, a brand is a portrait in a, yeah. in a lot of ways, you know. And and I make that connection in some of my keynotes. How it's the same thing. Like as a photographer, you get to get to know your subject, you capture that subject, and you hang it on the wall for people to see. Branding is kind of the same thing. You got to get to know your subject, in this case, your audience, how you're going to serve them, how do you need to communicate them, create the thing that they see and put it up on a billboard, if you will. Yeah. You know, it's kind of the same idea, I think. But for me, the um, the light bulb moment, first of all, I, I took up coach training kind of as a, I don't quite want to say a hobby, but I thought it would accent my own knowledge. I actually had gone to uh, school for three years at the New York Botanical Gardens for landscape design. It, I'm a consummate learner. Wait, when was, when was this? I know. This uh, was after photography school? No, no. This is in the middle of my photography career, actually the peak years of my photography career. And the reason I did that was- you were doing landscape, yeah. Well, I, I just, I felt there was something in landscape design that would help me be a better photographer. And in fact, not only did it help me be a better photographer, more than anything, it gave me a level of conversation to have with people that I had never had before. I've, keeping in mind, I photograph beautiful homes that have gorgeous gardens. And I now could have conversations with the homeowners about their gardens and the design and the particular flowers that I couldn't have had before. So it kind of added to my repertoire uh, of knowledge. So when I, when I sought out coaching, it was kind of for the same reason. I'm like, it'll make me a better communicator. But what I found is once I started you know, learning coaching and how it supports people, I realized I had something that a lot of people didn't have that I felt I could add to the world of business. And that was as a photographer for affluent families, I had spent at that point 25 years selling something nobody needed to the hardest market in the world to break through. And I thought if I could do that, I can unpack and figure out how anybody can market anything to anyone. And that that really is what inspired me to like, okay, where can I go with this? How many different people in different industries can I coach? And can I, what I refer to now is kind of the unconventional businesses. I work with clients that aren't out there in the world doing the, the corporate thing. You know, they're, they're coaches, consultants, they're bakers, they're massage therapists. They're, you know, as I like to say, they're people that are really good at what they do, but are in industries where there's no business training on how to make money at what they do. <laughs> and that's, that's who I like to work with. So you're working with, creatives and people who are at the top of their craft helping them trying to figure out how to better turn that into a business is that sort of the yeah it, you know i work with a lot of coaches and consultants particularly nowadays because so many people are leaving corporate you are <laughs> coaching the coach right exactly. well so many people are leaving uh, corporate and trying to figure out how to build a business on their expertise. And they're super smart people. They're most, many of my, my, particularly the students of my self-employed business institute, many of them have PhDs and masters and high level degrees, which is all well and good. But you go into business, especially if you're leaving corporate, because you have to, you have to shed that whole corporate mindset and step into a self-employed mindset, which is a very different way of running a business. So that's who I work with primarily today. Like I said, they're super smart people that are really good at something, but need support on how to build a business on it. Yeah. So I'm sure we have a bunch of listeners, right? And we have a lot of people thinking about going to work for themselves in, in today's world. What are without talking about someone specifically, or maybe you can give an anecdote or a couple anecdotes, like what are what do you commonly see? What are the biggest mistakes people make when they're when they're in a company, they're the world leader in X, and then they they go out to do this on their own and they're kind of struggling. Like what, 
what are they coming to you? What are the, what are the use cases? Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you, let me just, I'll just jump right to the solution <laughs> uh, because it's, it's a pretty common. So the problem is what I see, whether it's people leaving corporate. So the, these corporate folks are in this corporate structured environment and they want something more for themselves. They feel boxed in, forced to work certain hours, right? They're, they're looking for some level of freedom for themselves to bust out of the norm. In the same way that an innovative mindset, an entrepreneur has an idea about running a business and they want to break from the norm. So there's all these people that want to break from convention to do something unique, then get out there in business and find themselves repeating the very same things that make them feel like they're in a box. Why? Because most of business is transactional based. The world we look at, the businesses we see in the world are very transactional based and particularly in the corporate environment, if that's where you're coming from. You get out on your own and you realize, I don't care what industry you're in when you're self-employed, it's a relationship-based business. You actually have to do almost everything. I will say not only do you have to do things differently, you almost have to do everything the complete opposite of the way we see the rest of the world operate. And there's nobody to teach these things. That's what I do. It's like I I actually just gave a keynote last week. I called them a series of translations, right? So I went through translation to translation. For example, let's tra- what we need to do is translate target marketing into what I call in my book, hug marketing, right? We have to translate from an income-based business model to an impact-based business model. One by one, I after 40 years of being self-employed, one by one, I could go through a long list of think the way conventional businesses think and the, what we need to translate it into so that it works for us and also feels better. We don't feel creeped out by the way of doing things. That is true, particularly of corporate people, because they have a lot of they have a lot to shed in order to become self-employed. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time. And it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. 
That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So what if you're not good at the relationship? Should you stay employed at the at the big organization? I mean, you've seen, are there some, I always say, I think there's, there's intrapreneur and there's entrepreneur, right? There are a lot of entrepreneurs who are very good operating at the large organization, doing the new skunk works. But again, these aren't people quitting their job or working for equity or, or taking it at risk. And I think some of them make the transition to entrepreneur, but almost by the time a lot of people leave and become entrepreneurial, they were disruptive and wanted to do things differently or otherwise. This isn't talked about a lot, but there are a lot of people you talk to where it's just like, you may want to go back to an organization. <laughs> <laughs> you sure that guy? Um, and I mean, know, it's not that it's a bad thing. I just think that no. some people like security some people hate security it's not it's not a pro or con right no and again i mean to me self-employment can be the 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 nirvana that a lot of people are looking for to get out of the boxes that they think their their conventional job keeps them in it's not easier though no it's not easier (laughs) but it's absolutely not in fact it's harder it's the harder road but again you've asked you ask any self-employed person um or i should say almost every self-employed person will say yeah it's hard but i wouldn't have it any other way Right. Once you get a taste of that type of autonomy and agency yeah. of your life. Uh, but I agree that not everybody's cut out for it. In fact, it, it's been suggested to me and maybe at some point I'll do something with this that I think there's a whole opportunity for me to work in companies and, and help companies from a recruiting perspective to understand not just the, the entrepreneur mindset, but I think there's a self-employed mindset. And I think the ideal employees of the future for companies are employees who have the the tendency to want to be self-employed but don't want to be on their own. Right. Right. That to me is the ideal employee. Like if companies could get that and be employing people and giving them true agency over their lives, giving them freedom, remote work, get the work done as it needs to get done, but don't box them into the hours in which they work because people work best at different hours. Uh, if they can unbox the mentality, I think companies can recruit ideal employees that have a self-employed mindset but don't want to be in business on their own. Or like you said, maybe aren't particularly good at relationships. Although, Robert, I just want to add one thing. A lot of us, introverts especially, that think we're not good at relationships, we actually are fantastic at relationships. So, Well, there's some people who more, again, there are people who care more objectively about the result or the metric than the relationship yeah. sometimes. And, and not that that's a good thing, but there are environments that are more conducive to that than others. Sure, absolutely. So what inspired you to start your podcast, which was previously called Creative Warriors and mm-hmm. now The Self-Employed Life? Mm-hmm. I could think of those as being two different things or maybe the same. Um, maybe, maybe not all self-employed folks are, are super creative. But uh, yeah, what made you start it and why did you change it? Yeah, it was a great question. Why is it why I changed it? So I started it as a personal challenge, honestly. So it's been uh, since July of 2014. So what are we now? Eight and a half years, uh, yeah. 850 episodes. And I started as a personal challenge. I was in a leadership, a year long leadership program. And at that point, I had great success as a photographer. And I, I started questioning what I think today is one of the most fundamental things that we need to ask ourselves in business, which is, did I push my way to being successful? <laughs> I was a really hard worker. And hey, there's nothing wrong with hard work by any means. And there's nothing wrong with pushing your way to success, if you will. But I actually got to the point of questioning whether I was successful just because 
I overworked everybody else or I was successful because I over pushed, if you will. Yeah. And I wondered, was I just, did people want me because I was good at what I did? Would people want me because they just, would they show up just because I'm likable? And I didn't know. I honest, I always, I used to joke. I was a professional guest because I was the guest in everybody's home. I was the guest when I was a speaker. And I wondered what if I was a host, would people show up? So I started the podcast to play with the host mentality. Yeah. And um, wondered, would guests say yes to being on my show, even if they didn't know who I was? And would people show up to listen? And in fact, they did in droves, actually. <laughs> so, you know, it actually started as a personal challenge that I became addicted to, that it keeps making me grow. I love the conversations we get to have on a daily basis. The relationships get, get built. It's, in a lot of ways, the biggest waste of time and money there is in my business. And I wouldn't give it up for a second. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I, I, I talked about this recently as as my podcast hit a milestone. I mean, I, I released a book two, three years ago, did a bunch of podcasts. I have a new book coming out and I was reaching out to a bunch of the hosts sort of coming back. And I, I a lot of them were well-known business figures or otherwise. And I, I would say half of them wrote me a note and said, hey, I'm not doing the podcast anymore. Yeah. And and I think like anything, right, I always liked it was either Buffett or Munger said what the, what the wise man does in the beginning, the fool does at the end. Um, but I think a lot of people started podcasts, maybe not for the wrong reasons, but they didn't know why. Mm -hmm. And so when you don't know why you're doing something, it's hard to know if it's successful. And I think people thought it'd be super successful overnight or grow their business. And by the way, it's a lot of time, as you know, it has a real cost. And so again, I, I always said like when I, similar to you, I, when I did mine, I was like, you know what, this is just a really interesting way to have amazing conversations with people that I, I, mean, I probably wouldn't otherwise and speak to it. And as long as I was doing that and I, I was okay, I think other people are sitting around saying, well, I'm not at a million or it's not doubling my business or this thing costs money. I mean, how much like is important to be clear about why you're doing something to know <laughs> if it's the right thing? I, I just was so surprised how many people who I saw did really big launches had had quit so quickly, oh, yeah. and I think the average just, podcast was seven episodes. Is the average startup podcast? Yeah, yeah it's like I, or if you sell three books on Amazon, you're in the top fifty percent. But I, yeah. it just makes me think that why? So why did you just start it because everyone else was doing it, and you thought I, I don't know what they were looking for? I think you raise a really important point, and again, I think this has is bigger than the podcast conversation. Yeah. I think another. I think that, and again, I told you early on, like I turned everything upside down. And I actually think sometimes it's too much of a why. And I think, cause I think the reason most of these, the podcasts that, that fall by the wayside, I think it's sometimes because they have too much of a why they go into it thinking their why is it's going to increase their business. The why is it's going to get them a massive exposure. And when that doesn't, when the delivery doesn't come on their why, they give up as opposed to what's to be gained if you have an inkling. But so it's, it's the way in which I've also reframed goal setting. Particularly right. for self-employed people. Yeah, we need goals. But you know what's more valuable than goals today is follow what's unfolding. Because if you're so focused on your goals, you're not seeing what's unfolding at your feet. You're not seeing the opportunities. You're not seeing the shifts in the marketplace. You're not seeing how society changes. And follow that. You know, again, I think there's we need to loosen the grip on on how focused we are on our goals and our why so that we leave room for things to unfold in front of us. And then you just keep going. Eight and a half years later, 850 episodes. To me, it's just still unfolding. I'm still not clear why I'm doing it. <laughs> but it's opened up the world to me. Well, 
so the, I, maybe we're talking semantically, but let me let me put you a challenge you on one thing you said. I think you said when they don't know the why, they say, "Well, I'm doing it to help my business, or I'm doing it to, you know, whatever." It seems the problem there is that you're you're going into initiative looking to get something Correct. out of it, not not what you're putting in. And mm-hmm. I think that the podcasts that have probably done better than expected or otherwise are where people for whatever focused on the product and the quality of the conversations and not it's like having a child to, you know, save an organ of another child or something like that. I I just think rather than going into it for the purpose of the actual, uh, you know, as a creative person, the product itself, I think, I think those cases I'm, I'm going to write because it helps my business versus I'm going to write to try to add value to people. I think Correct. you take those out longitudinally and they have a different level of, of performance. hundred percent. I, I think it's just a matter of, if people are honest with themselves as to the why, you know, I mean, if you dig underneath as to why a lot of people start a lot of things is because they're seeing the gain in it for them. They're wrapping it up in a pretty, you know, Simon Sinek, I have my why, but the reality is you get underneath it. They're actually too focused on what they're to gain instead of what they're exploring or what value they can give. And to your point, like I read, I read the book of every podcast guest I interview, which is, I read two business books a week. Right. So that forces you to, yeah, learn. Right. And, and for all the reasons you're saying, it's it's an opportunity for me to learn and grow that I will never give up on. But it's also value. Like, I can't, I don't want to interview somebody if I'm not going to invite that guest to really invite and offer value to the audience because I've read their book and I'm asking intelligent questions. Yeah. It's funny. I, I A lot of people, you know, folks like James Clear and Ryan Holiday and folks that have these large lists and writing audiences, and people are like, well, how did you get to the million? And they're like, well... 5,000, 10,000, <laughs> exactly. like year nine, it's sort of, and then somewhere in year seven or eight, it's kind of like, you know, compounded interest. It just mm-hmm. starts hooking. And, and I think everyone's looking like, well, how can I do that without doing all of that work? Or James Clear was like, I wrote articles for eight years and just put value into the world when I interviewed him. And, and people just want the, all right, well, how do I replicate <laughs> without without doing all that work? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That, that's I said. Getting clear on your real why, not just the why it's going, why you want to do it because it's going to increase your business or what you're going to get out of it. Right. Not the why for you, but maybe the why Correct. for other people has a has a karmic element to it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And you, you, you did ask as to why I changed it. So let me kind of step back to that. So Creative Warriors was started. When I started the podcast, I was full on as a, a portrait photographer, just beginning to coach. You know, I was like, I said, I was in a leadership program. Uh, but by the, at that point in 2009 or so, my mainstay was, um, you know, photography. Actually, when I started the podcast in 2014, my mainstay was photography. Um, so what I most, where I most wanted to add value was people that were in creative businesses that typically struggled in business. So I called it creative warriors because I wanted to give the business side to creative businesses. Uh, but a few years into it, I realized my audience was much bigger than that. And I didn't, I, like you had said earlier, a lot of people just simply don't consider themselves creative. I mean, I, to me, if you're self-employed, if you're bold enough to create your own business, build something from nothing, you're creative. But a lot of people don't identify with being creative per se. Yeah. So I shifted it to the self-employed life and kept the same audience I had, right? People that were creatives in business are self-employed. So I kept that audience and took on a whole other audience. And this is when the show really took off. I took on a whole other audience of people that identify with being self-employed. So to me, they're, like I said, I brought the old audience with me 
and uh, added a new audience to it because they're kind of one and the same. I don't see a division between being a creative warrior or being self-employed. I just changed the brand name to be more identifiable to a broader group of people. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. Interesting. So... Well, that dovetails what I was going to ask you next. So you're, you're also your branding is all coming in alliance because your most recent book, The Self-Employed Life, mm-hmm. um, talks about three core areas, uh, personal development, business strategy, and daily habits. So I assume this is this is what you consider the the trilogy of success for someone who is who's self-employed, right? Can you give a little sneak sneak peek into what good looks like in each of those areas? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... To kind of come in at the middle, right? We've got personal development, business strategies, uh, daily habits, and mindset. Most people come right in the middle and focus on the business strategies. Understandable. Um, The problem is that if you just keep adding more to the portfolio of things to do, the more strategies, go to more conferences, more conventions, take on more trainings, you you just keep adding more things for you to do. This is what keeps you on the hamster wheel. With a step before that, that is often overlooked as the personal development part. And here's why. And in personal development, I'm not overly woo-woo. Like I like in the book, I actually refer to as a hashtag. It says hashtag woo-woo in your wallet. Like to me, there's a correlation between your willingness to do the development work and yep. your success to the degree that I repeat often that your level of success is proportionate to your level of personal development. I'd agree with that. Your personal yeah. development's like, right? Your personal development's like a glass ceiling, And if you want your business to grow, you actually have to raise the ceiling of your own mind and and possibilities, often raising the ceiling of what you think you deserve. Because if if you're limited in your thinking about what you think you deserve for whatever reason, whatever old messages are limiting your thinking about what you think you deserve, I don't care how hard you work. It's like trying to stuff an overstuffed sack because you're turning more work and being blocked by your not believing that you deserve more. But also assume if you assume that you master whatever works today, there's no way that the world's not moving, right? Yeah. You you got really good at X and then chat GPT came out and just now blew your, took over your yeah. job, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I love the description of your podcast. In fact, even the name of your podcast, right, Elevate, so yeah. right? And your description talks about capacity. And that is to me what personal development is. Personal development is increasing your capacity so that all the hard work you do fits in, Right. On the flip side of the business strategies, and business strategies is a lot of what we've spoken about. I mean, I turn everything upside down. I want to look at what are strategies that actually work for a self-employed business, 
that feel good, that don't creep you out, where sales aren't creepy and marketing isn't pushy. You know, those are the business strategies. I often refer to them as right-sized, right? So they're, they're strategies that are meant to work for relationship-based businesses. On the other side of the business strategies is the daily habits and mindsets. And, and I teach, you know, 15 to 17 minutes of daily habits, things like a clear your mind practice like meditation, a journaling practice that I call a what's going right journal, much more action-oriented than gratitude journals. But yeah, if you want to know what's going wrong, you just turn on the news. No problem, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, what's going wrong in our lives is spitting on our heads anyway. What's not spitting on our heads is what's going right, you know, right? Yeah. Because we're focused on we're focused on the threats. We're focused on what's bugging us. Um, so you need to reverse that. And the what's going right journal is a process of journaling what, what's going right and really seeing it. Because what we know is the more you see, the more you focus on, the more you see, right? So yeah. focus on what's going right, you'll see more of what's going right. So so to me, that's the sustainable success part. Like you can increase your capacity, you can do all the right business strategies that are that are right sized for your business. But if you're not supporting it, there's a quote in the book that says the risk is not in what you build. The risk is in not supporting what you build. Yeah. Right. The risk is not in the house you build. The risk is the fact that you didn't put a good foundation underneath it. And that's what daily habits and mindsets provide, a consistent practice of daily habits and mindsets to prop up what you're building to keep you going. Because it's a challenge. Self-employment is challenging. And if you're not prepared for the mental challenge of it, it's going to throw you all over the place like a ping pong. And we want to stop that. Do you consider self-employment more of the sort of owner-operated business? Or do you consider that all the way through to growing your business to 25? Is there some point it doesn't become self-employment, it becomes a business? Or what's your... How do you think about that? hundred uh, percent. I mean, actually, um, early part of the book, I actually break down all the common terms. Like, okay. what does it mean? You know, energetically, anyway, what does it mean to call yourself an entrepreneur? What does it mean to call yourself a small business? I, I lead up to proving my point that I, if you're self-employed, call yourself self-employed. Because it's not only a description of your business model, if you will, and your taxes. It's a representation of how you choose to live. Because when you're self-employed, people don't expect you to check out at five o'clock and go home and not think about your job. Like when you identify as being self-employed, people now have a sense of who you are in the world, that you're mm-hmm. somebody who's living in this gray area between our personal lives and our business. The buck stops with you because there's not a lot right. of other, Exactly. Yeah. So I just think there's, you know, I'm really trying to elevate the the image of being self-employed, uh, particularly here in the U.S. For example, in the U.K., being self-employed is far more revered than it is here in the U.S. My book does very well in the U.K. because they're proud to be a self-employed plumber. You know, in the U.S., there still can be a stigma around being self-employed. So why is that? Is that because the whole Silicon Valley America. <laughs> lifestyle right. business kind yeah, of... It's just, we're corporate America. I mean, that's... But what, I don't consider UK... I, I mean, we're much more entrepreneurial culturally here yeah. than there. So I'm surprised that there's a stigma around that. Well, that's a great point. Yes, we are more entrepreneurial-minded. And again, we've come a long ways. I don't think people feel shamed to say they're self-employed. Yeah. As much, but go back a few years ago, it would sound like you were in between jobs. Right, it sounded like you got you got you got laid off, and you, you got were, laid you know. off, and you're shaking. Right, it, and I hopefully I'm playing a part of of changing this stigma into, into being something you should actually be proud of because it says a lot about your character, it says a lot about your boldness. But like I said, it, in a practical sense, it just lets people know how you live a little bit because as soon as you know somebody's self employed, you know that you know they're living much more of an ecosystem. There's not a fine line between their business life and their personal life, and it all kind of mixes in. When does that change? When does it become a business that is beyond them? Is that a number of people? Is that a... Hmm. 
Um, I think, you know, yes, it could be a size of business. So for example, as a coach, and I see people on the rise of their business, and I don't, I'm not usually a coach for startups, you know, right from the beginning. Although you could say that I am because I, I work with a lot, I coach a lot of people that are leaving corporate to start a new business. I don't really consider them startups because they're already coming with a wealth of experience, right? Um, so at some point, I think where that changes a little bit, and quite honestly, if you're gonna get really frank, I, th- I think sometimes it's statistically around a quarter of a million dollars in, in gross yeah. revenue. And I say that because there's a point where businesses of one can build their business to a point of their maximum capacity. Yeah. When, when you, when everyone gets to the point where they realize they're selling hours on a Saturday afternoon. And is right. this, is this what they want to do? Cause they're right. getting to the max that they could sell. That they can, that's the max capacity. Whether so you're they, driving Uber or doing high end yep. consulting. It's and the like same. I said, it, it seems yeah. to fall, depending on what your business you're in, it seems to fall like around a quarter of a million dollars for a lot of people. And you can, yeah. and people just sit there and I, I call it the, the plateau buster. The only way to bust that plateau is to hire a team to sell other people's time. Yep. The only time you that, or just, you know, what I, what I find that keeps people stuck in a, a plateau loop is inconsistency. So they were being really, prior to then, they were consistently putting out those podcast episodes for content. They were consistently writing articles. They were consistently marketing themselves. But then they get to their max capacity and it all becomes inconsistent, right? So then you're not putting yourself out there as much. You're, you're inconsistent, your podcast or your content writing. By bringing on team members who take some of the load off of you, you can go back to being consistent on the very things that were building your business in the first place. And that's what busts through the plateau. Awesome. Well, I want to switch topics quickly. So I I saw that you, uh, I'm a big believer in core values and that as you talked about sort of building a foundation, to me, that's the, that's whatever goes in the cement on the foundation, you know, to build build from that. Um, I saw that you list your core values on your bio page. So I'm curious how, how, how did you settle on those? And like, how do you live those specifically? You hold yourself accountable to those. So the way it came about, uh, as it, I think it does a lot of times for us, you know, business owners, is that it started with something practical. A friend of mine, uh, I saw his speaking career take off. His name is Brant Mensoir. And Brant's speaking career took off. And mine didn't. So I reached out. I was like, "Okay, what did you do? And I what want are you step doing a- that I'm not doing. Right. I want yeah. step A, B, and C. Right? <laughs> Tell me exactly what to do so I can replicate your success." Right? But as it turned out, his, his answer was, "I got in touch with my core values." And at that point, you know, a little point of frustration, I said, not with him, but just you know, in business and what have you. And I said to him, "Well, that's all well and good." I said, "But I've done more than enough personal development. Like, you know, how's that going to help me? Give me the facts, man." Right? right. And he said, and I. Totally got it. He said the more he got clear in his values, he stayed true to himself. And the more he put those values out there, he attracted people that aligned with those values. And that from a business, pure business perspective, I agree with that. And I know how that works. So I did the work. I actually worked with him. Uh, he ended up writing a book called Black Sheep, which is a result of that conversation because he, he called those his black sheep values because the wool of a black sheep can't be dyed. It can't be changed. Yeah. Right. So he called up his black sheep values. And I said, you need to write that book. You need to write a book called black sheep right. because most people a, think it's of a being good a title. Book, that would it's be a great title of the battle. Right? Yeah. So I, I develop, you know, I did the work and, and my six core values are acceptance, gratitude, relationships, impact, trust, and support. And you did that without looking at a piece of paper. Well, 
I mean, it was, it, you have to talk it out. No, I mean, now oh, I'm just, just yeah. yeah, yeah. I see a lot of organizations and values that they got to go look at, you know, into yep. the drawer, figure out what they are. Yeah. It's an acronym. I call it a grits. Yeah. Right. And so I know, I know what it is because I call them a grits, a G it's just acceptance, gratitude, relationships, impact, trust, and support, <laughs> you know, but, um, he offers a lot of exercises, but I'll tell you the couple that really stood out to me that I think did the most benefit to finding my values is he asked me, what are my favorite movies, my favorite songs that I go back to over and over and over again? And what, what are the core values of the message of those songs and movies? And how does that point to what I value? That did the most work for me because I realized that they're just there's certain songs, there's certain, and I, it doesn't even matter if they're consistently songs. What I recognized is a pattern in what I'm fighting for. Like acceptance was a big one. That's why it's my number one value, acceptance, because I realized the core denominator in everything where I get, I get loud, I fight for, I'm, I'm doing my best to be in the world is I'm fighting against any place where people not, are not accepted. And that just doesn't mean just marginalized groups of people, but also I have felt most of my life that we small guys in business, guys and gals in business aren't accepted. Right. And that usually comes from a very personal place. Right. Yeah. And I, I'm fighting for the fact that I think self-employed people are awesome. Right. I think we're amazing and I want the respect for it. So I can't tolerate a lack of acceptance. Funny. I heard that. And I heard that before when you were talking yeah. about it. Yeah. You know, and he actually suggests five or six core values. He himself always said five, but he there was one that he just couldn't let go. And I had the same experience. Like my first five were all set, but there was one nagging thing that kept coming up that I felt I was ignoring, which is the fact that I get genuine joy of supporting people in their success. I get genuine joy, as I was saying earlier, about not making the spotlight about me, but helping other people build their business and get the support they need. And I could not ignore how support is an everyday occurrence for me. So clearly it's a core value. So I added a sixth. It's it's like children. They're hard to, they're hard to give up. Pick your yeah. favorite. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. All right. Well, last question. And this can be, I would say this is multivariant. So it could be singular or repeated personal or professional, but what's a mistake in your lifetime or in your career that you've made that you've learned the most from? <laughs> that I've learned the most from or that I keep making. Can I go with that? With, with the mistake I keep making? Those, I'm not sure that those are the same. Those might be the exactly. opposite, but you can I, you can go with either. Well, I mean, you just, I'm, because you keep making, I keep learning from it. Um, yes. I, I refer to it as my nemesis because it is a mistake I keep making, keep learning from. Um, I call it small numbers thinking. Yeah. You know, I forget to think and dream as big as I'm actually capable of. I tend to like put the markers too low. And it often takes other people to say, why are you thinking so? And I, I do think a lot of it is my experience as a photographer because I was in a very low volume business, um, very introvert business, right? I only needed to impact a small number of people on an annual basis to make a lot of money. And in the world I live in now as a speaker and an author and a coach, and I have to think big and I need big numbers. So the mistake I keep making is, is I set the bar too low and I, I'm constantly learning about the limitation of either past information as well as just in a practical sense, setting the bar too low with too small of numbers and think bigger. I can do more. I can impact more people. I can sell more books. So that, that was a big learning that keeps on teaching. So the same thing you're trying to do for other people, <laughs> but if they, you said you're good at doing for other people, you need to do for yourself. 
uh, isn't that the rule of life? Yeah. We can do for others what we can't do for ourselves. The old cobbler's <laughs> yes. kids. Yeah. All right, Jeffrey. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's been a pleasure learning more about your your work and your your, your fascinating background. And uh, glad we had the time to chat today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right, to our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Jeffrey's work and books on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.